Good morning. Um, I'm going to have you guys stand. And if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 12. Um, Thank you, that's perfect. I'm going to read verses 1 through 28. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha, Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd had come from, for the festival, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethesda and Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. This is the word of God. You can go ahead and have a seat. So the title of my sermon this morning is Creating Space for God's 
kingdom, prayer as the first response. It's been a while since I have preached. Um, I was on schedule to preach last month, but graciously, our pastor saved me from having to do that. I had um, several papers because of the way things worked out in the syllabus. One paper was sprung on me at the last minute. Another paper got postponed. And so ultimately, the week I was supposed to preach, there were also two sermons, or not two papers that I was supposed to write. So I was very, very thankful when Pastor David um, preached instead. Had I preached for you, it may have been the shortest sermon you have ever heard. Jesus wept. Go with God. That would, that's about all I would have been prepared to say. I was grateful when Pastor David agreed to preach and offered to preach um, instead of me. It's been a few mo- rough months for me. But I was grateful and I was thankful not only because, again, literally, I don't know what I would have said or how I would have put a sermon together, but also because I was not in the best of places last month. It's been a rough couple of months. The Ferguson situation, followed very closely by the murder of 20 students in Mexico, and then the Eric Garner decision, and then the killing of a 12-year-old playing with a toy, and the killing of a man in Walmart holding a Walmart product. It's been a rough couple of months. 140-plus people, mostly children, killed in a school in Pakistan. It has been a rough couple of months. I was in a very, very cynical place. A very cynical place. I got into a place where any and everything that anyone would say regarding any of these situations just irritated me to no end. To no end. We should march on Washington. For what? Why? Why should we do that? We need to work on relations between the police and the communities they serve. Should we? Is that, is, that's what we should do? Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. The system is broken and we must fix it. it is, it, nope, it's not broken. It, it is working. It's actually working. Not for me, but it's working. Any and everything a person would say, every solution we need to end terrorism. We will defeat the terrorists. Are we, that's what we want to do by blowing them off the face of the earth because that is a strategy that has proven also very effective thus far. Any and everything you could say irritated me to no end. I would sit in classrooms. I'm, I'm a sociologist, so I'm, I take sociology classes. I sit around other sociologists, people who have been like, like this is what you do. This is what we study. And the things that would come out of people's mouths. I'm like, Jesus, if you could just keep my tongue. Any and everything irritated me. I found myself for the first time in my life really being able to relate to those branches of Christianity to say, hey, let's just sit and wait for Jesus. That's about all we can do in this life. Let us just sit and wait for the Lord. It made a whole lot of sense to me. Because I could not see a way out. I got to a place in my life that I have not been in a very long time where the solution to pray and wait seemed like that was about all we could do. But that wasn't a hopeful 
posture. That wasn't something that I thought and said, yes, we can pray and we can wait. It was, what? So I'm not sure what would have come out of my mouth had I preached for you last month. But you can look at your neighbor on this morning and say, ain't God good? You, no, really, you can say it. Say it, ain't God good? Hallelujah. Because see, in as much as it was a blessing that I did not have to preach last month, the fact that I am preaching on this specific Sunday, on this specific passage, is a testimony to how faithful and good God is. So when I was preparing for this sermon and I read um, the passage, there were three different texts that we could choose one. And the first one was this text from the book of John. And when I read it, I said, God, you are so very good. Because it spoke directly to a place that God had been dealing with me in, over the course of these past few months. It spoke to exactly where I was and the revelation that God had given me and the thing that had been bubbling up inside of me since I got past my funk. <laughs> and so I'm excited to preach to you on this morning. God is good. See, the truth is that, in fact, all we can do is wait and pray. But oh, what a powerful thing it is to wait and pray. So in the passage that I read for you this morning, we find Jesus in the days before um, the crucifixion, um, and a transition has happened in the text. There's something new that is going on. Jesus is now aware that the crucifixion is coming. He is about to die, and he's starting to prepare himself and his disciples for it. And also for the first time in John's gospel, and one of the only times in John's gospel, we're starting to see Jesus talk about this thing, and we can see that it's a struggle for him. He didn't just go jolly off to the cross to die. Like, we see him wrestling with this thing. It's the first time that we see Jesus struggling with what he was called to do. Now, the way that John recounts this, it's, it's, it can be easily missed. So I want us to look a little bit more closely at verses 17 through 19, specifically. So in these verses, we learn that there um, was a crowd of people who witnessed Jesus raise Lazarus up from the dead. And those people went out and started talking to other folks, which you would do, right? Because if you see somebody raise another person from the dead, you will tell lots of people about it. So that's what they did. So when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, a whole lot of folk have heard about this man, and they are coming to see him. What, what's going on? I want to see Lazarus. I need to see this Jesus dude. Like, what is happening? So the text tells us that there are a group of Gentiles who are among them. Now, these Gentiles who approached Philip were likely God-fearers. These are people who had not been... Um, they hadn't been circumcised, and so they weren't converts, but they were very, um, you know, favorable to the Jewish faith in varying degrees. Some people just thought, ah, oh, this is kind of interesting, and other people may have gone as far as to worship in synagogues and keep other aspects of the law. So they come to Philip, likely because he had a, a Greek name, um, and they say, we want to see Jesus. These God-fearers, these non-Jewish people, these Gentiles decide they want to see Jesus. And the word that is translated see here is more than just um, we want to come and look at the man who did this amazing thing. Or even we want to come and talk to and ask some questions of this man. 
the language that is used is the same kind of language that had been used earlier to talk about the way the disciples interacted with Jesus in the beginning. We want to see Jesus is kind of letting us know that they were um, prepped to believe. It's kind of that same language in taste and see that the Lord is good. They didn't just want to talk to Jesus. These were people who were ready to believe in Jesus, who were ready to follow Jesus. And so then Jesus responds. And his response should have sounded odd to you when you heard it. Jesus, there's some people, some um, Gentiles, they want to see you. (laughs) Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies. Like, what? No, but the the people wanted to see you. It's an odd thing to start saying. Like, Jesus launches off into this whole, like, spiel about the seeds. And then, all right, okay. So to get this, we have to, to, to see what John is trying to do. It's important to remember how Jesus understood his earthly ministry. He was very explicit that he came for the Jews. He did not come for the Gentiles. And in fact, sometimes he was offensively explicit. You may recall the story of Jesus talking to the Canaanite woman, and he calls her a dog. He, you know, I mean, it works out in the end, but it just, right? Like, that's a little offensive, you know? He was explicitly here in his earthly ministry for the Gentiles. And so what, what's happening in this moment is Jesus is recognizing something has changed. The time has come. My earthly ministry to the Jews is now ending, and I'm about to begin my ministry to all people. He's recognizing the weight of what's about to happen. Yes, he came to walk among Jewish people, to talk and interact with Jewish people. He absolutely interacted with Gentiles, and we have accounts of that. But often, it was done in a way of sort of juxtaposing the the faith of these Gentiles with the Jewish lack of faith at times, right? A way of saying, hey, look, even these people recognize who I am and are faithful. The time was coming, though, when he was about to die for all of us. So that moment marks a transition. And so when we understand that, then we can see that these verses, specifically verses 27 through 28, are in some ways a parallel to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that's accounted in in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There Jesus goes and he asks the disciples to just stay up. Stay up for a little bit. Watch while I go and pray. Of course, they can't do that. They fall asleep. And that's where we find Jesus in the garden praying before the Father to say, please take this cup away from me. But then ultimately, not my will but yours be done. These verses parallel that a little bit. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now, at this point, you may be wondering how any of this is related to creating space for God's kingdom or to prayer. So we are getting there, I do promise. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
two things are important to see um, in this in order for us to understand why these verses ought to be life-giving to anyone who may feel the way I felt at the close of 2014. First, to see the weight of these verses, we need to take Jesus' death on the cross at face value for a moment. We need to see the way we would have seen it if we had been with Jesus at the time. See, if we were followers of Jesus in that moment, we wouldn't know what we know on this side of the cross. We wouldn't have experienced yet the resurrection and the fact that this death was not an end. It just would have been a crucifixion, a common way that people were killed all the time. It happened time and time again, and it would have just looked like defeat to us. We have to see it then. Because if we look at Jesus' death on that side of the cross, then when we say things like Jesus died for our sin, Jesus died because of our sin, it means something just a little bit different. One of my favorite hymns is um, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. So the second verse of that says, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. This is how we understand the crucifixion on this side of the cross. That's that's what we understand Jesus died because of my sin to mean. He died because I am sinful. We are sinful. And the only way that we could have a right relationship with God was through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's true. That's absolutely true. So don't leave here thinking that that is not a good view. His death was necessary for us to have eternal life, but we only know that on this side of the cross. If we had been walking with Jesus then, we would have had a very different understanding of that phrase. Jesus died because of our sin. Jesus was nailed to a cross and left to die a slow, excruciating, public death because humanity is capable of not only imagining such a way of killing someone, but then acting it out time and time again. Jesus died because of our sin. Jesus was beaten and humiliated over the course of several days before finally suffering on a cross. Because humanity is capable of enacting grotesque violence against other human beings. Jesus died because of our sin. Mary watched, Mary watched as people laughed and taunted her son, her child, as he hung on a tree. A mother watched her child die a humiliating and painful death because we are amazingly capable of dehumanizing other people. We create systems that are wicked, and when our systems dictate that some folk are out and some folk are in, we have an amazing capacity to say, and I agree, I hate them. I will not see them as myself. Jesus died because of our sin. He died because we are the kind of people 
who can take pictures smiling with our children in front of a man hanging from a tree. He died because we are the kind of people who can walk into a school and target children to kill. He died because of our sin. He died the way that he died because of our sinfulness. That's how we would have understood the phrase, Jesus died because of our sin, on that side of the cross. That is the weight that Jesus was carrying on his shoulder as he was approaching the cross. He was going to endure humiliation and unthinkable suffering and ultimately death. And he was going to do it in front of a crowd of people who not only gathered to watch, but to cheer. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. See, you have to feel the weight of that in order to see the hope in these verses, to see the power of the prayer, Father, glorify your name. It's a short prayer. It's just four little words, but oh, what a prayer. Father, glorify your name. So the second thing that you need to understand to see why this passage, why um, especially these two little verses are life-giving to anyone who is feeling the way I have felt. The second thing you have to see is the meaning of glory. So this is a common word in the Christian dialect that many refer to as Christianese. Um, If you have been a Christian for just a few weeks even, I can assure you that you've already become a little fluent in this dialogue. See, these are words and phrases that we throw out there with no sort of explanation, and it just, we expect it to mean something to other people, because we all know what we mean, or at least we think we do. Other phrases include, give it to Jesus, take it to the cross, and my personal flavor, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Let's just be washed. I just Just think about that. (laughs) I don't want to be washed in blood. I mean, like, if you just really think about what we're saying, that's not a pleasant image. And and I think that that particular phrase is a wonderful example of Christianese. Because when we say that, we know what we mean, right? We mean that we're saved and we're talking about the fact that Jesus died and he shed his blood. But think about it. No one was actually washed in Jesus' blood. Like, that's not what happened. The reason we say that and the reason that phrase makes sense or should make sense is because it's related to the Old Testament. You have to understand when we read, you see, you read those little Old Testament passages that talk about sacrifices that had to be done on the behalf of the people. They were bloody, gory messes. The reason we say that is because we no longer have to literally be washed in the blood of animals because we have symbolically been washed in the blood of Jesus. But see, these are little phrases that we throw out there, words that we say, and they don't ever really get fully explained. You just, we all know what we mean. 
So glory is another one of these words. We sing about it. We use it in prayer. But you could spend a great deal of your Christian life and never hear anyone actually say, like, this is what it means to glorify the Lord. Like, this is what glory means. We all just kind of think we know what it means, right? The context clues. And we're, you know, we're, we're close, I guess. <laughs> but in the Old Testament, the word um, that, is used, that is translated as uh, glory is kavod. And so this word literally translates as weight or, or heaviness. So one of the most common uses of this term in, um, in the Old Testament when it applies to people is to talk about the wealth of someone, the status that they have, right? So they are heavy, they are weighty in society because of the things that they have. It was also used to talk about the amount of something. Again, the weight of it. Uh, In the New Testament, this idea is carried over. So to talk about the glory of God was to talk about the weight of God, the heaviness of God, but not just in terms of, of measurement. One writer puts it this way, and I love this. The term glory was used to convey magnitude. It's meant to signify a glory comprehensive, widespread, and vast. It's not, though, weight alone. It's exceeding weight. That is to say, a surpassing weight, a weight that goes beyond the bounds of excellence and eminence. When we say glory to your name, God, or we glorify the name of God, what we are saying is, God, you are the weightiest. You are the heaviest. You are the biggest, the best, the most amazing. You are, you are the man or the woman or the woman. And I know some people are like, what do you mean, or the woman? It, you can say that because it's, it's fine. God is a spirit. Don't be freaked out. You are saying God is heavy. He is weighty. He is the heaviest. So let's put this together. Jesus is facing the weight of the cross. He is about to face the magnitude of evil. He is about to face the heaviness of injustice. And his prayer is, Father, glorify your name. Facing the weight of sinfulness and injustice of violence, he says, Father, glorify your name. And what is the response? I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus, I'm already heavier. I have already shown myself to be the weightiest. And I will do it again, once and for all. So let me make it very plain for those of you who may still be like, I don't know if I get it yet. We live in a world where evil abounds. And make no mistake, this is not a new thing, right? Um, I was talking to Maggie at the, the dessert for leaders, and we were just talking about the comment that people always think every generation is like worse than the one before. There is nothing new under the sun. The writer of Ecclesiastes was right. Sin, injustice, ugliness, the ugliness of humanity has been since the fall, and it will be until the return of Jesus. We live in a world where injustice and oppression, where the ugliness of violence abounds. 
and it's heavy. But God is, in fact, heavier. God is, in fact, weightier. God is, in fact, bigger. God is glorified. He has been glorified. Sin and evil abound, injustice abound. Hearing that school children and the teachers who tried to protect them were killed intentionally should feel heavy to you. That should feel weighty to you. That should press on you. Hearing about the injustices of racism and violence, it should be heavy. And if it's not, check your heart. It should be heavy to you. It should make you feel some kind of way. You ought to have your shoulders like this for a little bit. It ought to give you pause. It ought to knock the breath out of you. You should not be able to hear about those things and then just continue like business as usual. It's heavy. It's real. It's weighty. But God is, in fact, weightier. The sin and the injustice and the ugliness of our world is enough to break a person. But under the weight of God, those who are broken can stand. God is in fact heavier. He is in fact weightier. His magnitude is far surpassing any of the mess of our world. These kind of events should press us down. Because they are sharp reminders of how inadequate we are. They are sharp reminders of what little we can do in our own strength, through our own intellect and will. They should make us feel a modicum of what Jesus felt as he grappled with the reality of the cross. And like Jesus, our response should be to pray. Why? Because the only response that we have, the only response that will focus us us on the real truth, that God is weightier, that God is heavier, is prayer. Yes, injustice is heavy. Yes, violence is heavy. Yes, racism, oppression, and corruption are heavy enough to cause things to bend and people to break. But God is heavier. He is weightier. God is, in fact, the heaviest. And under the weight of the glory of God, broken people can stand. Broken people are healed. Broken systems are abolished. Under the weight of the glory of God, we are able to move and live and have our being. Prayer is the only response to the weight of this world because it is the only response that will first help us see the whole truth and will then help us know how to rightly resist. Prayer makes space for God's kingdom in our lives by reorienting us in relationship to the magnitude of God. So let me tell you this. You can march all day and all night. You can boycott every corporation in this country. You can write letters to your elected officials that are so poignant, 
it brings people to tears. And I guarantee you, it will do absolutely nothing unless it is directed by and submitted under the weight of the glory of God. Unless it is directed by the weight and the heaviness of God, it will accomplish absolutely nothing. See, you, we, me, you, we have to pray. Because if we don't pray, there are only two things that can happen to us. The first thing is that you will spend yourself doing and doing and thinking and thinking and trying to fix and believing that you can save the world. And you will do it to no end because you can't. The other thing that will happen is that you will just stay broken. You will look at the world around you and you will have absolutely no hope. Last week, Pastor David talked about the importance of hope. You cannot be hopeful without prayer. It is prayer that helps us to see the truth of who God is. That it doesn't matter what we see around us. Make no mistake that doesn't take away the weight of the world. The weight is heavy. But God is heavier. Period. Prayer is what allows us to know the whole truth. God is bigger. He is Better. He is heavier. He is weightier than anything that we face in this world. The things that we face in this world are awful and ugly and they are heavy and they ought to press on us. But we can stand and we can shake it off because God is what? He is heavier. He is bigger. And he says, that's why he says, see, take my yoke upon you because I'm heavy, but you can stand under my yoke because see, I'm also gentle and I'm kind and I'm loving and I called you and I gave you a purpose. And so you don't have to just spend yourself and twiddle your thumbs and try to figure out what to do. And you don't have to be hopeless and think, well, there's nothing that can help because see the glory of the Lord tells us that we have each been called and we have each been given a purpose and God will make it. So when we submit to the weight of God, when we surrender to the heaviness of the Lord, then we who are broken, we can stand and we can walk And we can move and we can praise and we can say, oh, no, injustice, you will bow down to Christ in Jesus name. That's what we can do when we submit to the weight and the heaviness of God. And we do that through prayer. So, yes, all we can do is wait and pray. But oh, what a powerful thing it is to wait on the Lord and to pray. Because when we do that, when we respond to the conversation that God is always having with us, oh, what amazing things can happen. So, if you have been at all like me, feeling broken and just like, what? I pray that you will be encouraged by this truth. God is heavier then anything you are feeling, anything you are dealing with, anything you have seen, God is weightier. Glory to your name. Please pray with me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. God, I thank you. I thank you that you are bigger. I thank you that you are 
pillar. I thank you that you are the heaviest. I thank you that we can glorify your name in a hurt and broken world. I thank you that that is just the truth. You are a good God. You are a God that is sovereign and you are a God whose kingdom will come. It has come. It will come again. I thank you, Jesus, that you have not left us here alone. I thank you, Father, that you allow us to see the ugliness of this world, that you allow us to experience the ugliness of this world, that you allow us to be impacted by the ugliness, the heaviness, the weight of this world. And I thank you, Jesus, that you don't allow us to be overcome by it. I thank you, Jesus that you have given us everything we need not to be broken and defeated by it. I thank you, Jesus, that you have called each and every one of us to participate in your restoration of it. I thank you, God, that as we look at a hurt and broken world, as we are in despair, we are not left alone in that. We don't have to stay in that. I thank you, Lord that you are constantly speaking to us and that you give us the opportunity to respond. I thank you that you delight when we respond. Lord, it's my prayer that we would be people who hear you, who listen for you. I pray that we would be people who see you, who look for you. I thank you that you are always at work. Help us to be people who are always orienting ourselves so that we can be at work as well, doing the things that you've called us to according to your will and your purpose. Help us to see you, God. Help us to know you, God. Give us understanding of who you are and who we are in relation to you. Thank you that we have not been left alone, that we have not been forsaken, that we are not broken, that we are not pressed down, that we are not unable to move and to stand. I thank you that we have been given freedom and liberty. I thank you that we can even rejoice when things are ugly, that we can even dance when things are miserable, that we can even praise when things are broken. I thank you, God, that you have made us a people of hope in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your holy name.